I wanted to be this more inspirational movement of what, who are we and, and what are we doing and why are we doing it? And so for me, I think on the startup journey, as you know, it's so hard. And so something that I decided within myself was to say, well, I can take at least one act a day. Like mm. that is what I can do to focus on the vision of what we're doing to combat the climate crisis. And then it takes off this pressure that you see in the news and the media around everyone needs to run around with their, you know, hair on fire and, and be zero waste or nothing. And instead say, no, like here's who I am as a human being. Here's my bandwidth and resources. And here's the one act I can take it. Welcome to the Sustain Podcast, where we discuss all things that exist at the intersection of design and sustainability. Are you intimidated by the zero and zero waste, but you want to live more sustainably? Are you inspired by elevated, timeless design? Do you prioritize progress over perfection? Then you're in the right place. I'm your host, Jacqueline Tracy, the founder of Sustain, a home-focused, sustainable marketplace on a mission to build a more circular future, imperfectly, but collectively. the honor of interviewing Brianna Kilcullen, who is the founder of Enact. She is such a force of nature. Um, This conversation was so incredible. I'm so excited for you to listen to it. We talk about everything from her being kidnapped in Rwanda to how she then got into, you know, she was working in human rights, moved into the traceability and the sustainability of fashion and apparel at Under Armour and Prana, and then built this incredible company, Enact, which is, um, you know, they're selling uh, sustainable towels made out, out of hemp and organic cotton that you can find on our site on our Sustain e-commerce today. So really, really incredible, powerful, amazing conversation and human. Um, Brianna is has great tips for if you're interested in starting your own sustainable brand, um, has really good tips for sustainable brand founders, and just shares so many insights and learnings about the journey of creating a company from nothing. So I'm so excited for you guys to hear this today, and um, thank you for tuning in. Enjoy the show. Today we have Brianna Kilcullen. She's the founder of Enact, um, a sustainable. She she creates sustainable towels made out of hemp and organic cotton that are better for people and, and the planet. We actually sell uh, Brianna's towels, um, Enact's towels, on Sustain's e-commerce and and in store too. You can get them in store as well. Um, and I'm just so excited to to chat with you today because you have so many things going on even beyond beyond what you have already created and what we're selling. So I'm, I'm really excited to like share with our community what's going on with an act. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And I am so excited watching you grow and see you continue to carve out sustainability e-commerce as we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely are. Our missions are very aligned for sure. So I wanted to start out with... Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit about Enact? Because I actually just love even the name and the thoughtfulness behind it. Like, what does it mean? And why did you start the company? Yeah. So um, I have always been inspired by brands that have movement within their name. I think that that fits with me. Like, I really enjoy timeless concepts and inspirational concepts. And so for me, when I thought about what can we do when pe- what would people associate with our product? I didn't want us to be called Pimp Tao Collective or you know eco-friendly products. I wanted to be this more inspirational movement of what, who are we and, and what are we doing and why are we doing it? And so for me, I think on the startup journey, as you know, it's so hard. And so something that I decided within myself was to say, well, I can take at least one act a day. Like mm. that is what I can do to focus on the vision of what we're doing to combat the climate crisis. And then it takes off this pressure that you see in the news and the media around everyone needs to run around with their, you know, hair on fire and and be zero waste or nothing. And instead say, no, like, here's who I am as a human being. Here's my bandwidth and resources. And here's the one act I can take a day. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I brought it back to me. And I was like, if, if I can do this and it holds me accountable, then we can share this as a community driver. And that whenever you interact with our product or our brand, you feel inspired and in charge of your own life to take one act, um, whatever that looks like for you. Um, so that's where that came from. Uh, I just love that so much. That's yeah. so, and that's. It wasn't trademarked. So, I mean, we, we trademarked it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, the domain was available. There's like, you know, it's really hard you kind of have to make up names these oh my days. gosh yeah that's I, somebody somebody came into our store the other day and she was like um can you google what sustain means and i was like uh i made it up actually and it stands for sisters and sustainability <laughs> like you have to make up a word yeah yeah, yeah. So, um yeah. but yeah so that is i yeah i just really love that i love i just i think it's so aligned especially with our philosophy at sustain of like progress over perfection I just, I really, I mean, I know, I, I know that our two companies definitely have so many alignments, but just even hearing that background, it's like, oh my gosh, what a cool, like one act a day. Like, I just love that. Um, okay, so what got you into sustainability in the first place? Because I, I know you have even like a career in sustainability as well before you launched this company. So like what, what drove you to jump into the sustainable space? So my background's different, I would say, than most. I started really defining sustainability as human rights. Mm -hmm. So I studied abroad in South Africa and worked under Archbishop Desmond Tutu. So I was much more focused on human, like post-apartheid race relations Mm -hmm. and how do you have, create peace and stability, um, like post conflict. And so that was how I defined sustainability. Um, then I studied abroad or, or uh, lived and worked in East Africa and worked with farmers in Northern Uganda and South Sudan. And again, I then was looking at post-conflict zones and then creating um, micro economies um, for the farmers. And so then I got really interested in saying, you know, what I, in focusing on the fact that jobs alleviate poverty greater than anything else I've ever seen before. So I started going from like 
really into researching what happens in post-conflict war zones to then what are the mechanisms that helps them heal. And so getting into the private sector um, area, I had uh, an incident happen where I was kidnapped in Rwanda. And so coming out of that experience, I decided to move back home to DC where I went to school. And I was like, I'm gonna live in the US and then I'll like travel and like help create jobs in post-conflict war zones. And so I was up for like 10 different positions and nothing came through but this job from Under Armour. And they were recruiting and growing at like 30% a quarter. And so they were in Baltimore and they were like, hey, we're looking for someone who has supply chain manufacturing experience, um, you know, would you be interested? And so I was like, hey, do you guys have a corporate social responsibility team? What are you doing on sustainability? And they were like, no, we don't. Um, But if you come in and learn the business from the ground up, you can create your own position. So that was, I was like, okay, that sounds like a pretty cool opportunity. And the campus is amazing. And it was like such a good vibe, although I didn't want to leave DC. Um, So I ended up moving to Baltimore and then I started working in production and manufacturing and I would go to the factories in Central America and I would see the people making our clothes and learn about the trade trade agreements. I would learn just about the whole design process. And so through that, I was able to see the areas of improvement that needed to happen um, for the company from a social and environmental perspective. And so I ended up um, waiting and I would research other brands and see what sustainability positions they had. So I look at Patagonia and I would like see what their team had. And I was like, oh, they have these positions. So I started crafting a role for Under Armour that I was like, this is what I think you guys need. And it was so economic, economically and still is driven that I knew they really wanted to sign Notre Dame. And Notre Dame had these requirements that you had to disclose your supply chain and you had to audit all of your factories. And so I was like, hey, you guys want to sign Notre Dame? I the cost of this position in this program is going to be a fraction of the cost for the sales you will make. You got to do it. And so I pitched it and I got approved. And that was like how it happened. So I was like the first sustainability full-time position at Under Armour. And then I had to shift from social to environmental because so many people define sustainability differently. Mm-hmm. Some people composting. Some people it's fair trade. Some people it's, um, you know, is there no plastic? Like there's just so many different ways people define it. And so sitting in Baltimore and having people come to me and say like, I want a compost. Like I want all of our factories to be fair trade. I want this. I was like, okay, I have to expand my definition of sustainability because it's clear there's a lot of different vocabulary around this. So I ended up adopting the 17 UN SDGs because it had all of these different classifications. And that was, yeah, where I broadened, but I would say I've always been much more connected on the social side of understanding human rights of understanding um, the role that corporations play um, in impacting on people. But then I have since expanded to realize they're both connected. And so connected. Oh my gosh. So connected. Um, Okay. So I want to circle back to just because I know that if anyone's listening to this, I'll be curious about this. And this is like, if you are comfortable, but you were kidnapped in Rwanda. Is that what you said? Is that like for how long? And then how did that like just, yeah. I mean, I just have like so many questions, but (laughs) um, like. 
I'm starting, yeah, I'm sharing it more because I think as a founder, people a lot of times wonder like, oh, you're so fearless. Like what made you take this risk? Or like, and you're like, oh, because I had other life experiences that were way scarier. And mm-hmm. so then you know, jumping and building a business from scratch is like nothing compared to fighting for your life. Like it's just not. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was traveling, I was on holiday. Um, it happened at the airport. It was really quick and unexpected. And um, basically I was traveling with a group and there was a motorcycle driver who drove up and we thought he was with the group, but he wasn't. And I got on the back of his motorcycle and because I'd been traveling, I didn't have any, my friends all took my luggage and all my bags, so I didn't have anything. So I got on the back of his motorcycle without anything on me. And um, he just took off um, outside of the city and um, Kigali was where I'd flown in. And so I didn't know where we were going, but I was like, I know my friends live in the city. If we're not going to that, like I've been on this bike for a while, it's dark. Like, why would we drive out of the city if he doesn't know where he's going, um, if he knew where he was going? And so it was just, I realized, I was like, this is not going to be good. Like, mm-hmm. this is not a situation. We're not going to where I think we should be going. And so I just kind of had to go into, like, fight or flight mode um, and just strategize, like, how to get off the bike and how to find help and how to, you know, figure it all out. So I ended up um, waiting until I saw lights, like, on the side of the road. And then I uh, just had been prepping myself to say, like, okay, what hotels do I know? You know, what is the history of this country? Like, what is their system? And it's obviously they've had a genocide, like, so I'm, I'm thinking there's got to be military presence, like, prevalent, like around. And so I waited till I saw lights, and then I just started, like, beating him on his back, and then I jumped, and then I just started running and screaming. And then I was, yeah, kind of went from there. But it was pretty um, touch and go um, for a lot of it. Uh, and just, yeah, feeling very unsafe of not knowing, like, how I was going to get back or, like, mm-hmm. what people were going to do to me. In that process, it took probably six to eight hours for me, um, oh my and a lot of negotiating um, to get there. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. that's so scary! Wow, ugh, I can't even imagine that. That's so scary. But I'm so glad that you, I mean, that you survived and that you're able to, like, I mean, even just that response, like that's like that you like strategized. I'm like that's. I'm very impressed with all of it. That's like, oh my God, wow. I'm in a pinch. I know who I'm calling. Like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I went into this this mode where I was like, knock if you buck. Like, I was just like, if, if it's you versus me, it's I'm coming out on the other side. Yeah. And I can't, like, 22-year-old Brianna, just full force was like, no. Oh my gosh. Wow. That is oh, so wild. I do recommend like obviously state department tells you not to use public tra- local public transportation. Like there's so many things that we were not abiding by. So I take ownership also in the humanitarian space. So many people, um, kidnappings are very common. Like mm-hmm. anyone you work who works in us for USAID or state department, like they have briefings and at least people have like been kidnapped once or twice. Like it's a, fairly common thing because you are so clearly not from that area mm-hmm. there's money associated with that there's just so many other things so it is rare I think in the U.S. to have had this experience and for like in my community and friend group like no one else has but I think in that space it's like much more common unfortunately mm-hmm. yeah Ugh. oh my gosh wow so um 
Okay, well, thank you for sharing that story because I was like, okay, I have so many questions. Wow. Uh, so, and then, okay, so going back to just like you founding an act and and um, and getting into like the traceability and the sustainability space and um, corporate social responsibility. So I actually really think it's it's like such a beautiful thing that you um, that you came from the human rights space and then moved into sustainability because it is like they're just so connected like so completely connected. Um, so that's just such a cool background. But when you started Enact, was there, because I know that like hemp and organic cotton and everything like textiles is like this other side of it that um, it sounds like you're like analyzing that from Under Armour space. And then at Prana is where you were too, right? So what like, what was the moment where you were like, Okay, I want to, this is, this is like, you know, the next step for me. Yeah, so I think um, it's funny too, what I realized on the human rights side is so many people have opinions, like, you know, what we're seeing happen in Gaza mm-hmm. around like culture and it, and it's like, I, I think I got frustrated trying to convince people why they should care about other people. So then I was like, well, what's a common denominator we all care about? Water the climate crisis, like that all impacts us socially. Mm-hmm. And I felt like going at um, sustainability from that angle actually helps us help people more than specifically saying like we're fair trade or nothing. Um, so that was like my takeaway, but I also became very obsessed with numbers and data because I think that's a missing component of sustainability where a lot of people greenwash and go and, and, and make certain content claims um, without it actually having numbers behind it and so Mm -hmm. that to me was so important and I think a big moment when I was at Prana was that there was a material sustainability index that ranked fibers from best to worst that had been created by Nike and shared um, that was data driven throughout the industry so it just felt like a north star like a guiding like a compass to say like no longer does anyone get to just put out a press release and say like this is the new fiber but like we've actually done a life cycle analysis on each one of these from cotton to hemp to polyester. And we can tell you what is the best one and Mm -hmm. most sustainable. That was really helpful for me. That's what I needed. Um, And so in seeing that thermometer and that hemp was at the top, but that we were barely using it. Barely using hemp. I feel like literally only in the last couple of years has hemp been like, oh, wow, this is a really magical material that none of us talked about. (laughs) <laughs> before like 2021 or something. Yeah, it's still in its infancy, I would say. So I think um, that pushed me to say, okay, if this is the most sustainable compared to the fibers we're currently using. Why are we not using it? How do I get more of it? How do, what, what's been going on? And so I think the legislative piece is such a huge component of the fiber and the fact that it has been illegal to grow for decades since 1930. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, seeing that, I was like, all right, there's a story here. There's like an underdog energy around this fiber and this crop and this infrastructure for farmers, for entrepreneurs, you know, for consumers. And is that the legislation, is that in, because of the relation to cannabis or? So the theory, like as it states, is that we were utilizing hemp as a preferred fiber for paper, fuel, um, oil, food, et cetera, but that it was threatening cotton. It was threatening, mm. paper, it was threatening um, 
the uh, uh, like petroleum industry. So basically, they were like, let's make it illegal to grow here so it protects the industries that certain people um, in certain positions had a majority stakeholder in. And we'll import it, but we won't grow it. And so I think okay, that, that makes sense. underneath to say like the Cannabis Act uh, or the Marijuana Tax Act and have that relation with the drug, but or with uh, marijuana and, and put it under FDA instead of USDA. But mm. now it's under USDA and it's been decoupled. And so, mm-hmm. but there's so much negative stigma still associated with it that it still has an uphill battle for consumer education oh my gosh so, that's so fascinating yeah it's a really it's it's really intriguing and I think for me um what's important is that we lead with we're just a better performing towel that just so happens to use hemp instead of leading with hemp because your funnel gets smaller so we have to keep our funnel bigger um but while I was building the product I ended up ha- helping pass legislation to legalize it in Florida because I was like, we do not need anyone not buying our product because it's illegal to grow. Mm-hmm. So make sure legislation is up to date so that um, we don't we can remove as many barriers as possible um, for, for our product brand and for this fiber in this country. Wow, that's amazing. Of course you help pass legislation. That like doesn't even surprise me after hearing Rwanda's story. <laughs> like. <laughs> I just think that after like 22, like I was in therapy and like my family were talking about it. And I think it's just like after 20, after that happened, I just like, was like, all right, well, if I survive that, what am I doing? And yeah. I, just started, I just did, I've just been doing whatever I want. Like the things I really care about, I do. And I think I've also realized Because you had like a, I mean, that's a, that is still a near death kind of experience. Like it's like a well, awakening kind of experience. Totally- like mm-hmm. if I made it out of all of that, then like, what am I here to do? Mm-hmm. I have, like, there's a um, TV show. Have you watched Working Moms? Uh, I've seen like an episode, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's this like one scene where she almost dies from a car accident, and then she lives, and like her response is not like fear. It's like all of a sudden she's like, never felt so alive, and so then she like tries to do things to make like get her back in that place. So she like gets the like massive spider and is like having it crawl on her. <laughs> and he's like, "What are you doing?" And she's like, "I'm just trying to like the level of presence that I felt." <laughs> I just I don't want to go there, but I want to find a way to get close. <laughs> I feel like you know when you have like really scary, traumatic, dark moments where you're like, "I don't, that was horrible." Like I have to have humor with it because mm-hmm. I, that is the best way to get through it. And so I think that that's kind of what it's been is like, how do I get to that place where I was like so present and aware of everything around me and like, you know, blocked everything out without going through an experience like that ever again. And Mm -hmm. I think that I just, there's so much suffering in the world. There's so many things going on that has been created that I'm like, I'm just going to focus on that. And like, that's going to be my way that I alchemize. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a deep part of your why. Sustain is raising a community investment round and you're invited to participate. If you love Sustain, believe in our mission, and want to become a co-owner of our rapidly growing company, visit wefunder.com slash sustain. Investments start at just $100. Okay, so with hemp, 
I would love for you to share a little bit more about, cause I, I do know, I mean, and I know you guys do like hemp and organic cotton and, um, you know, I love the towels and they're amazing, but the, like the bacteria side of it, I'd love for you to share more about that because I know, um, I don't know the scientific, um, way to explain it and I'm sure you'll be better at explaining it, but I just know like, I mean, when I use your towels versus, uh, a regular, like organic cotton, like a hundred percent organic cotton towel, it is, it's like they, there's no like mildew smell. There's no, you know, like it's, it just feels like a cleaner experience. So I'd love for you to share a little more about that. So I grew up in Florida and I've always been around towels, so many towels, beach towels, regular towels, like towel, towel, towel. And <laughs> I um, hate the smell of mildewy bath towels because of that and the humidity. Mm-hmm. And so when I was living and working in, in San Diego, living in San Diego, working at Prana, I didn't have a washer or dryer. And so um, being the sustainability person there, everyone always asks you for recommendations. What are the best socks? What's the best toothpaste? What's the best toilet paper? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't recommend a towel. And so when I um, was traveling to China for work, it was after the hemp harvest. And so the factory owner there explained to me, hey, this is a pretty awesome crop, like from a sustainability perspective, but performance, because if you see how hemp is grown, it's like 10 feet tall for plus for fiber, and its molecular structure is hollow. And so that's what allows water to flow through instead of get stuck. And so that was where I was like, okay, so it's biostatic and it's able to resist the growth of bacteria because of its molecular structure. Mm. So then that was science I needed to hear and know about to explain its performance attributes. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to make it 100% hemp just because there has been such little innovation in the supply chain because of the negative stigma around hemp. So... I was like, how close can we get? And they were like, we can do 55% hemp, 45% organic cotton. Mm-hmm. And then um, I always, am, I've always been really sensitive to chemicals and dyes. And so I was like, I want to make these dye free so that you feel safe getting out of your shower and your pores are open and you're putting this, you know, textile on your body and you're not having anything harmful interacting. And so I would say this current the current product we have was like the best that we could do with very limited resources to get as much hemp in it as possible to design it with a proprietary weave that would wick the water off that would prevent anything else, anything from building up and staying mm-hmm. within the fabric as well as um, it all being dye free. So that was where the innovation on the product came from. And what I've always been inspired by and define innovation by is not by making something IP or like brilliantly convoluted, but really simple design aesthetic tweaks. Like yeah. how do we use natural plant fibers that perform the way that we want to mm-hmm. and use all of the things and the noise to get down to the essence of the functionality of the product. Mm-hmm. That's like what I'm attracted to as a founder, entrepreneur, designer. Like I want to get have products do what they're supposed to do in a way that's not harmful for the planet when they're being manufactured so i can go live my life yeah and totally and that's yeah what we promoted that like we're not trying to come out with a bunch of SKUs a month and like mm-hmm. people to to buy from us we're just trying to make really good quality products that are innovative utilizing nature that help you then get to go do the things you want to do 
Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And that's, and uh, the other thing that I do, I, I try to talk about this at least on our Instagram quite often, but like even the fact that you guys chose organic cotton too, it's like still people, a lot of people do not know that. Like I've, I've seen people post about like, like why do we need organic cat, like cotton when we're not eating it? And it's like, okay, one, your, your skin is your biggest organ. So like everything that you're putting on it, you're absorbing. Um, but also like there are cotton is the heaviest pesticide um crop like it's like one of the dirtiest crops in the world um and so organic cotton is so important like i try to emphasize that to people so frequently because i still think that that is kind of under the radar of it's like oh well it's cotton so it's good it's natural but it's like no there are like lots of chemicals and pesticides used to create those you know that that cotton towel that's not organic Exactly. And what people don't know is that cotton is grown next to your food. So like mm-hmm. it's, it shares the same soil space. So it is equally as important because if you don't have, if you're eating organic food, but then they're growing non-organic cotton, you're still impacted. Mm-hmm. Uh, pesticides that, that are being sprayed. And so I think that's the connection. A lot of people don't realize it's like farm to fashion and that, they're all, it's a proper rotation for the farmers. Yeah. So, so interconnected. So completely interconnected. Yeah. Oh yeah. So, so yeah, I love that. I love that you guys have chosen hemp and organic cotton. I think it's a really, it's amazing mix and it's, it's an incredible towel that you've created too. Um, and so, okay. So with Enact, like tell us more about, um, well, just a little bit about just like the, the experience of building the company and, like any, any like big insights that you, like if other entrepreneurs were listening that were like, I want to start a, like a new a sustainable brand. Um, like what things would you like, I wish I would have known this. Um, and of course it's like, we shouldn't, you know, I, I don't even want to frame it like that because there's no regret. It's like you learn the lesson when you, when you are meant to learn the lesson, but is there anything that you would, you would have like shared with your younger self in the the beginning of building the company? I think the biggest one is that as much as, you know, we love sustainability and talking about it and like leading with it, at the end of the day, people respond to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What can you do for them? Mm -hmm. And I think that's our responsibility is to understand and know what problem we're solving as it relates to shelter, food, you know, all of those aspects and solve that problem and then bake in the sustainable like factor on top of that. Um, that's what I see a lot in sustainability people in the space is people are like, it's this, it's that. And like at the end of the day, if it's not a better product on the market than what it's competing against, the sustainability aspect of it is going to get lost. So I always say like focus on product or services that solve problems and provide more value than what's currently on the market and then ensure that you design sustainably in mind and then you can use that as your marketing attribute but lead with the first aspect of that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that you get taken more seriously. I think a lot of times like sustainability becomes a feel good or a nice to have or it like seems like it's not understanding of how business works and that we are accountable to profit and loss statements and to growth and to creating value for all of our shareholders and stakeholders in our community. And so being like 
clear that you can understand the numbers, that you can understand, you know, how business traditionally works. Um, I think those are the parts that are really important. Yeah, I totally, completely, 100% agree. <laughs> um, and then when you started Enact, were you were you e-commerce to begin, or did you do pop-ups, or like what was the starting kind of foundation? Gosh, um, I think the first starting point was doing a pitch um, that I won in Philly. From there, we did Kickstarter. Um, from Kickstarter, I remember we had product um, that wasn't going to come until March 2020. And so some of my advisors were like, well, holiday 2020 or 2019's around the corner. What are you going to do? And I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I am now like a CPG company. Like we have to run product. Like it was like, it was almost like a, what have I gotten into? <laughs> uh, I was just so focused on like, well, here's the timing of the towels and here's this. And they're like, no, you need to, if you want to make this your full-time gig, you need to be selling your round and you need to figure out their avenues. So I think I did like 45 or 50 farmers markets, like at the beginning, wow. uh, just selling tote bags. We designed a line of tote bags specific featuring Florida based animals. And so that was like our stocking stuffer, stuffer gift. And so we did like, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 um, that month in like farmer's markets and email campaign. And that was like my first foray into really like selling. Mm-hmm. And then once we like got through that and then our towels and our inventory came, then we started selling online through Shopify um, and then doing collaborations and then expanding onto marketplaces. So now we sell on Amazon and Target, Wayfair, um, Wholesale. Um, we just did a collaboration with Austin City Limits. Um, we're launching on Growth Collaborative. So now we're like getting to the places that it always like wanted us to, but the very beginning was like farmers markets, emails, social media campaigns, like going to retail shops and asking if they would carry our product. Like it was very boots on the ground. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really what you have to do. Like it's, like I, I mean, every, I think every business has a different playbook. And so it totally is dependent on like, who's your customer? Where are they? You know, all that. But I do, I think that just like, even that concept of like boots on the ground is like, if you're starting a brand, like, you, you do, you have to like be in your community. You have to be talking to people, you know, face to face and on Instagram and on social media and, and email and all the different places. So I think like if we had had contacts in our like Rolodex that we kind of reached out that had retail opportunities, like we would have done that. Um, we just didn't. Um, Cause like I come from apparel, not necessarily home goods. So mm-hmm. like I have apparel retail contacts, but not like, the Nordstrom's of the world. And so I think that what a lot of founders don't want to go through or when people glamorize girl boss or that energy is like the real struggle of showing up and being told no and having to figure out what the resources you do have. And I think that that was a learn, that was where I learned my grit. And it's like, I always question when people are like, oh, I can do all of this. But I'm like, but have you like mastered your hometown? Like, have you like mastered like the space you're already in? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that that's where you have the biggest learning curves. And like, for me, I'm like, the fact that we could sell a sustainable hemp towel in Florida in like the middle of the Trump election, Trump administration and do well, I'm like, we can sell anywhere. Like that, that was my takeaway. I was like, no, nothing could be as hard as that. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. And it is, I'm, that's, I hear from a lot of, um, I don't know, like founders and other just people in the entrepreneurial world that it's like you're when you're starting a company, it's it's really not meant to be easy or or else everybody would do it. Like everybody would do it. It's just, it's not meant to be easy. Like it does take grit. And those are the companies that survive is the ones who like, you know, talk to people, get feedback, um, like and continue forward and just keep iterating. Like that's the companies that survive, you know? It is. Yeah, my mentor was like, companies stop when founders don't want to solve the problems anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how much, how willing are you to continue to solve these problems? And I think the founders I gravitate towards are the ones who are the visionary, visionaries. Mm-hmm. something. And I think what is interesting that's happening is that women have not had the resources and tools to ID and innovate in for big visions. Like, we just are not given that number. Um we're given like the network to create a small candle company. Like mm-hmm. we're, you know, given the network to create a pastry company, but like to actually ideate and innovate on a massive scale, that's the piece I don't see. Um, and I think that it makes it even harder. Like it's already hard, but then on top of it, yeah, like, being a female, like a, yeah, yeah. You're like, like, no one's been speaking this language to me. Like, you know, so many terms and, and vocabulary that are used in the investment space or in high growth startups, like no one has ever, and I have an undergrad in business, has ever said those words to me. Yeah. So you're learning a whole new language and it's like, you know what you need, but you've never heard the term to define it. Mm-hmm. That adds to it. Oh um, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and, and also it is just, um, I mean, I'm lucky because I grew up in an entrepreneurial family. So I was exposed to business at like a very, very young age. Um, but like, that's very, it's super unique, you know, like, and I, I think it's when I think about like the fem the female founders and the whole, especially investment space, like you're talking about, it's just, it's still wild to me that I'm like the venture capitals, um, venture capitalists backed only 2% of female companies just last year. Like only 2% of the companies that they backed were female founded which is still, it just, to me, that stat itself just speaks that to like that there is, it is not an even playing field for men and women when it comes to trying to scale like, and, and really, really build like a startup at, with what you and I are both, <laughs> both you know, <laughs> setting out to do here. But, you know, I have to think constraints are good. Constraints mm-hmm. like force innovation. And yeah. Time. Oh yeah, they do. So I do think, like I've been telling people, I'm like, forget BC, just go to the family foundations mm-hmm. because that's where they're going. So like just sidestep them. And like they're on a three to five year timeline, but mm-hmm. the family foundations are on a 20 year timeline. Mm-hmm. So family offices. So I think that like kind of peeling back the layers is like what is scary. And it's funny because one of my investors was like, what are people so scared about women knowing? And I'm like, it's a scarcity mindset. When you've dialed in an industry and you think you know how it works and you're running it, and then all of a sudden and you have other people who want to come into it, you think your pie is going to get smaller. So you start protecting it and preventing like a new group from coming in. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's my theory on mm-hmm. it. Like, it's not more wide. And then there's obviously confirmation bias. If you don't, if somebody, and I get it, 
like if I come in and they want to hear me say certain words, but I've never even been told those words, but we're, we both want the same thing. They might not give it to me because they didn't hear me say what was the thing that they needed to hear, mm-hmm. but I'll say it in a different way because no one's ever said like, do you have dry powder? I'm thinking that's like a drug, but like what it means is like, do you have extra after you've closed your round that you need to deploy? To yeah. Your yeah. Right? But it's like, no, I'm like not understanding that that's what I need to be saying. Mm-hmm. So, um, are you guys currently deploying? And like, it's just like little things like that. Yeah. Where there's like almost a miscommunication. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But we're still wanting the same thing. So I think I wish the VCs in the investment world would be taught like, just because someone's not saying that word that you need to hear doesn't mean that they're not bringing to the table what you want. They've just never been communicated that way. Yeah. And then there's also like stats about how like female found, founded companies like are outperforming male companies like every day too. So it's like, yeah, it is like, can we just all get on the same page? And yeah. Um, but I, I, I like what you're saying about the peeling back the layers. And I do think it's at least for me and especially in the Denver startup space, I think that being a female is the most, it's, it's actually such a gift because like females unite in a different way. They support each other in a different way. There is like serious community around just even being a female founder because it's, we're still underrepresented when it comes to like the investment world. And so it's like, we can have these like female founded, female founders only events and things like that. And then my, the male founders I talk to are like, Oh, well, I'm like, we don't have any special thing that we're like, exclusively a part of you know so we have like I think there's also like different support that's coming in now because of that too interesting I haven't experienced that yet um because I feel like I've experienced more there's so few of us that like more of a competitive Mm -hmm. piece of it than like let me uh, like share this with you and then like we all will rise like I I try to do that um but I haven't had that experience yet, so I hope just, that I do. Just, just come to Denver. You'll, okay. yeah, to come to one of our events in Denver. You'll feel it. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. But I do think it is interesting women performing, like, in presenting to our investors last week in a strategy meeting, there's, like, these areas that we've just, like, crushed, absolutely crushed. And they're just like, huh. And I think it's this intuitive knowing, like, like we obviously look at the number, we look at the data, once we draw the analysis of what's working or not working and we benchmark it, then I like intuitively like tap in and I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. where do we all go? Who is doing what? And I like look to the team and I'm like, how can I push that person a little more? Or, you know, what is, is this, is this in alignment with where the brand really should be or should we move to this channel? And I think what I've seen a lot of male founders do is that they like raise the money they deploy it and then they just are like really tough and they're like you meet the school and you don't meet the school you have to tell me why and it's like a really kind of intense environment to operate like my mom like was here last week helping and my mom was like oh my gosh my cortisol levels are out like through the roof after walking through the accelerator that you're a part of people like you just the guys are free everyone's running around because they're on this like tight timeline and they're freaking out about not providing the return and they're just stressed. They're stressed. It, it's anxiety provoking. They're yeah. under so much pressure from themselves. They're the accelerator, the investor. Like it's yeah. I've heard that so frequently too. I'm like it is. And then it's and then you're stuck in a scarcity mindset and not in an attracting an abundant mindset, which is 
I honestly think about like all the time how I try to reset my energy frequently. Uh, well, because I'm fundraising right now, and I'm like, I have to be an and like attract abundance mentality. And and if I start to fall into the scarcity stuff, that is like when I'm like, I just I can feel everything's off, you know. And and it's easy to do as a founder because there is like fear and there's risk and there's all these things, but um, but yeah, it is. There's a lot. Yeah, the men are kind of just pushing through that versus like women are intuitively tapping into like, okay, how can I get to this place where you know we're checking in with our head, our heart, and our gut. Yeah. Well, and also like a, t- a different timeline of like slow is fast, and mm-hmm. what are the like? Is it fair? Like, do do the best things come from a three to five year? you know, push, um, mm-hmm. around it. Or like, I think of it as raising a child, like mm-hmm. you, it's not really taken off till like you're 18. Um, but perhaps if they have a special talent or some je ne sais quoi, and you give them that, maybe they take off at like eight or like 12. Like, so I think that's where I see like growth capital and like those things making sense. But I think like, for example, for us to all expect that a three to five year old could like, be this amazing person and mm-hmm. just like crush it in the world is so rare. Yeah. But that's like what everyone's operating under the belief system that they can create something and bring it to life and bring it to market. And then in three to five years, it can be the next Facebook. And I think that that's where I see that stress come from. And so the way that I thought of curbing it was like bootstrapping the business so that I could protect it from the beginning and that we could grow it organically so that when opportunities came, we already have a strong foundation because I was like with it, you know, and yeah. doing markets, which like, did they feel beneath me? Yeah. Like I've been at multi-billion dollar companies and here I am like schlepping product out of the market. <laughs> like, like, you know, it was, yeah. it was, it was an experience I needed to have. So. Totally. Yeah. No, I've done the same thing like, so many times, like so many pop-ups with sustained stuff. Um, yeah, absolutely. Oh, uh, wow. Well, so, um, okay. So this is the, the question that I do ask everybody who jo- joins our podcast is like, because our, our philosophy is so focused around progress over perfection. Um, is that like, how is that, um, a philosophy, a philosophy that you incorporate into the work that you do at Enact? Like, how do you guys kind of choose progress or perfection when it comes to like creating the product or, or, or even distributing the product or, you know, even building your marketing efforts. Totally. I mean, I think in a dream world, we would be able to make it in the U S we'd be able to use natural dyes. Um, we'd be able to produce as close as possible to the markets we sell to. We would use a hundred percent hemp. We would, um, do a take back program. So like every time you order, you can send back your old towels and we would have like a full circular economy in place um, for Mm -hmm. that. But there's that and then there's our reality. And so I think that that is where we're filling the gap. And so in the meantime, we make it in China. We just, we don't offer dyed product yet because we can't find natural dyes. We ship in compostable mailers and we advise when you're done with your towel to take it to an animal shelter and we give feedback on how to do it because we don't have the ability to do a take back yet. So I think when I think of an act and like progress over perfection is we acknowledge what a perfect world would look like in our vision statement and then we acknowledge the reality of what we are operating in and then that we're constantly striving to bridge the gap. 
And that's like what makes me feel good about it because I think so many people don't start because they don't have that perfect mm-hmm. conditions. And I think the key to it is to say like, if I could control the world, this is what I would do. However, I'm a human being who like has to operate like everyone else does. So in the meantime, if you believe in the vision of what we're doing and how we're doing it, then like this helps us get there by understanding the constraints we're facing right now. And so that's, and just being like clear, like we have it in our FAQ and like I talk about it, like, yeah, if there was made in, manu- made in America manufacturing available that could produce our product, we would do it. It's not that we're not doing it. It just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do we do this? You build the marketplace using infrastructure that is already in place. So I think that that's like how that the comfort is not acknowledging it or making yourself feel guilty about it, but just saying like, I'm doing the best I can with the resources I have. Yeah, and it, the, the, I get a better set of cards that makes sense. I will do that, but like we just launched this American um, made in denim hemp, um, American denim made in Alabama, and it's like really interesting because everyone has said, "I want American product. I want American product." Okay, we get American product made in America products, you know, completely grown and sewn in Alabama, and then people won't pay for it because they want a lower price point mm-hmm. so they're like, okay so you wanted this but you don't want to pay for mm-hmm. what it cost yeah okay. so now we're like let's go shop it around to people who have the price point and then the people at the price point are like actually i don't care about made in america so you're like this is really wild like that we're discovering this insight that all of these Sorry, I'm going on a tangent, but this is like what's been frustrating me. Yeah, no, this is fascinating. I like because I've, I've, this is what you're saying is learnings I've also learned with sustain too. Like what you're talking about right now. Totally. Everyone wants something, but they won't pay for it. They beat you up about it. Mm -hmm. But then they don't. So they, they, what is, they talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Mm -hmm. So then you're like, okay. And then, then I'm like, I'm like, there must be some weird psychological insight that then the people who have the price point, like care nothing about the sustainability aspect of it. And you're like, how? Like, <laughs> yeah. I guess they're just like, well, big capitalism believers. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So we're getting close to finding the sweet spot of like who that customer is that cares. But um, I think that those are the conversations that as founders, like if whoever's listening on the podcast, like, just I put 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 it up on your um, website, put it up on your FAQ, put it on your vision, so people know that if you could, you would. Yeah. And then I think that relieves you from whatever people. I mean, we just got like three customer questions today about why we make in China, and I just am like, please read our statement. Please read our statement. Like you know. Yeah. So that's how we combat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is. I think that's beautiful. And I also I I see you guys continuing like continually progressing too so like it's I think it's so cool to be like this is where we this is where we want to be you know these are constraints now and like you know if we could take like small steps towards that like I know you I already know you guys as a company will like as you can get closer to the vision like I know I see that in you guys so I think that's a really I think to anybody who's creating a sustainable brand I think actually that's like one of the most important messages because every single sustainable brand founder that I've talked to has said the same thing where they're like I wanted to be here but then as soon as I had created the product like you know we ran into this 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 and this and so we had we were here instead you know and I just think that is so being realistic about getting into it like 
it isn't it's just not perfect because there are just like systemic things that you have to face and you have to be realistic and you have you know and profitability is is important you know so so all those things i think that's such an important message to to anybody who's creating a sustainable brand Totally. So you take all your frustrations and then you do podcast interviews. Yeah. <laughs> and you, after you get to share it and be like, you know, so use it as content. It's content. I just think use it as content. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yeah. Okay. So where can people find you? It sounds like you already told us kind of like where, I mean, you can definitely shop um, Brianna's towels on Sustain. So look up Enact Hemp Towels. Um, so we sell those on Sustain, and then and then she's like sold in a number of other places um, that she shared. But where where else can they find you? Like Instagram, I know is Enact Global. Is that what your Instagram handle is? Yes, you can find us, um, follow us on Instagram. You can buy on um, through Sustain, um, Amazon, Target. We're running some deals. I don't know when this podcast comes out but we're running some promos on for holiday on those channels. Um, but we prefer you to come through Sustain. Um, it's our first choice. And then we're launching on Growth Collaborative um, in the new year, so you'll be able to buy from us there. And then we are getting into some new cool places that are going to be more um, in-person events that you can find us, like through music festivals. So, so amazing for that. Oh my gosh, that's so incredible. Um, okay, well, we will definitely be just, you know, in tune with your whole growth journey. Like, I'm so excited for you and this company. And I really, I think that, um, I think just like the mission and the foundation and the ethos, like, is going to just take you so far in this world. And I really love meeting brand founders who are really like their heart is in the right place with the company and i know that with you so um so thank you so much for sharing your story today um and and yeah we'll just stay tuned on like all the amazing things that an act is going to be doing in the future thank you and likewise it's like so i'm so glad we were connected and been able to do this podcast and just to see your growth your race and like your vision i'm like ready for do all my registry like sustainable like remote be like guys this is where we go we don't go anywhere else Um, so i'm really excited to see where you build thank you so much thank you for joining me today brianna Thank you for listening to the Sustain Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any suggestions for future topics, please reach out to us through our website or Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review if you enjoyed what you heard. Your support means the world. Thanks again for tuning in. We look forward to creating a more circular future together, imperfectly, but collectively.